I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Siva Vadianathan. And from the University of Virginia's Karsh Institute, this is Democracy in Danger. It's good to be back with you, Will. Great to see you, Siva. Look, this past June, millions of Americans were appalled and frustrated when the Supreme Court of the United States overthrew Roe versus Wade, the 1973 decision that held that women do have a fundamental right to choose to have an abortion if they wish, and that the state should not interfere with that right. Yeah, it seems to me that we're living in a time of judicial tyranny. The court seems to rule as it wants, regardless of precedent, and without anything, any power, checking its own power. Right. I mean, the Roberts Court has, as we know, and we've talked about on this show, it's all but dismantled the Voting Rights Act. Mm -hmm. uh, the court paved the way for huge corporate influence in elections in the 2010 Citizens United case. Right. And we know... Uh, because they've told us that members of the current Supreme Court have talked about perhaps overturning the gay marriage decision or even having another look at things like, you know, access to birth control or interracial marriage. I, I, you just can't but feel that you're kind of moving back in time to the early 19th century. Yeah, right. So on today's show, we're asking the straightforward question, what can we do about this? That's right. So we've invited the legal scholar Chris Sprigman to join us. He's a law professor at New York University and formerly a colleague of ours here at UVA. Chris is an expert on intellectual property law, but he's also written more broadly about the role of the courts in our lives. And he has some very interesting, perhaps provocative ideas on why and how we could limit and restrain the role of the court. Chris, welcome to Democracy in Danger. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So, Chris, liberals and progressives these days are talking a lot about measures like, oh, packing the Supreme Court with progressive justices or putting term limits on justices. But you say those approaches have some serious problems and that Congress should step in and invoke a power that's explicitly spelled out in the Constitution. What is that power? And why is that a better way to go than, say, packing the court? Yeah, sure. So the power that I want to talk about is Congress's power, which comes from the Constitution, to shape the jurisdiction of the federal courts, both the mm. Supreme Court and the lower federal courts, which are also very important and often forgotten in these discussions. Let me just pause for a moment before I launch into that to talk about the things you mentioned, which are court packing and term limits. So the problem with those things is they reinforce something that I think is very unfortunate, which is our commitment which has grown over the last century to what I would call unqualified judicial supremacy. That is mm -hmm. the idea that the courts have the last word in every instance on every issue regarding the meaning of the Constitution. I don't think that's what the framers intended. I think that's something that the anti-federalists very early in our history as a republic were very afraid of. Um, but we've drifted into it. And I'd, I'd like to try to see if we can't kind of get ourselves out of that rut and put in a more balanced form of constitutionalism where democratic majorities working through the political branches, the Congress and the president can have their say about what the constitution means, not willy nilly, but in a disciplined way. So there's, there is a way out. Yeah, so let me describe the power that Congress has. It comes from article three of the constitution, specifically article three, section two, clause two, which explicitly says that Congress has the power to make exceptions to the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction. So Congress has the power, in other words, to pick and choose for about 99% of the Supreme Court's total docket what cases the court is going to hear and what cases the court doesn't have the power to hear. Um, you know, people look at Article 3 and they might be surprised to find 
that the only jurisdiction the Constitution guarantees to the Supreme Court is what's called its original jurisdiction, which is limited to cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers, and those in which states are fighting. Wow. So that's a minuscule share of the Supreme Court's docket and everything that's else. That's all the boring view. stuff. Yeah, it's the boring stuff. I mean, maybe cases involving ambassadors can be exciting <laughs> or, you know, New York and New Jersey are fighting over who owns the Statue of Liberty. That's pretty exciting. But aside from that, Congress has the power to regulate it. You know, just one other thing, the lower federal courts aren't even mentioned in the Constitution. Article 3 doesn't establish them. To establish and to regulate the lower federal courts is entirely within the power of the Congress. They're all creatures of Congress. Congress creates them. Congress gives them jurisdiction. Congress restricts their jurisdiction. And that's been true since the Judiciary Act of 1789, the first statute Congress passed that regulates the federal courts. That statute created some lower federal courts, gave them some jurisdiction, but a lot less than they have now. Yeah. So, you know, Congress has the power to create. Congress also has the power to withdraw. Well, look, uh, Chris, I'm, I'm a good old-fashioned liberal, right? Good 20th century liberal. And here's the story that I have that I took forward from the 20th century, right? Long ago, the courts stood up and said, hey, we are going to determine what is constitutional and what is not constitutional. The court said, we are going to review the laws that Congress passes to make sure they conform to the principles expressed in the Constitution and later in the penumbra of rights that emanate from the Constitution, right? And from that, right, we get Brown versus Board of Education. We get, you know, Roe versus Wade. We get Lawrence versus Texas, which, you know, allowed for uh, the decriminalization of same-sex relations. It seems to me like there's this great progressive unfolding because we have relied on this supreme power of the Supreme Court. So what am I missing? I mean, are, are, are we looking at moving from judicial tyranny, which we have right now, into a moment of, uh, you know, radical sways, depending on who controls Congress? Yeah. So that account, I think, is not descriptively complete. Hmm. And aside from that, I, 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 I want to be careful about how we tie it to liberalism. So Korematsu, okay, which was the, the decision that basically allowed the government to throw Americans of Japanese ancestry out of the West Coast. I mean, a terrible, shameful decision. Uh, for, for every Brown, I can give you a Plessy, right, which, which reinforced separate but equal for a long time. The Supreme Court has long been a reactionary institution, a force for regress in American society. It had a brief period where it seemed to be a progressive beacon during the Warren Court and inconsistently on sexual autonomy issues when Anthony Kennedy was writing opinions. But, you know, the Supreme Court has reverted lately back to its form, which is to stand athwart progress in this country. Now, in terms of how liberalism should deal with that, you know, I am not a 1960s liberal. I am a 1930s liberal. And, you know, my icon, FDR, saw the court for what it was as a elitist reactionary institution whose power needed to be curbed. He did that in a, in a fairly blunt way by threatening to pack the court. The threats were credible enough that I think in the end, the court kind of lost its nerve and stopped invalidating New Deal programs and let them move forward in a kind of modified form, ultimately. But Roosevelt didn't see the court as a progressive champion, quite the opposite. And I think that liberals' tendency to see the court as a progressive champion is hampering them now when they're facing a very different reality. And let's not forget that, you know, we can celebrate Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas, but there was that case with Seattle 
that undid a lot of what Brown had tried to accomplish, right? And 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 pretty much went backwards on on school segregation. Yeah, and also Brown is, you know, and many people have pointed out, Brown illustrates the limits of judicial enforcement of constitutional values. Right. Brown did not desegregate schools. Brown declared that segregation was unlawful, but of course we have all white suburbs where people resegregated themselves. You know, what, what it requires, I think, and this is part of my argument in this piece, what democracy requires is a culture of democracy mm. leavened with decency. Judges cannot supply that. We, we must supply that. We voters, we citizens must supply that. This overfocus on courts impoverishes our discourse, transfers responsibility for providing a decent liberal society to a bunch of people in robes, and away from us, this is disempowering and I think ultimately bad for us, bad for our culture. So, Chris, has Congress really ever tried to invoke this power? Uh, are there cases where they've talked about doing so? Yeah. So this goes back a ways. The proof of concept for jurisdiction stripping happened in the Supreme Court's 1868 decision in Ex Parte McArdle. Uh, that's a case that involved a newspaper editor who was held in military custody after he ran a bunch of op-eds that were critical of the federal reconstruction efforts. So the editor appealed to the Supreme Court, basically on a habeas corpus writ, and the Supreme Court heard oral argument. But then while the Supreme Court was deliberating, Congress repealed the provisions of the statute granting the court's appellate jurisdiction to review the denial of habeas. So yeah, the court had another argument, heard argument on the constitutionality of the Jurisdiction Stripping Act, and the court upheld it. Uh, Chief Justice Chase, writing for a unanimous court, concluded that Congress's exercise of its exceptions clause power deprived the court of jurisdiction to decide whether the editor's imprisonment violated his rights. Kind of amazing. Uh, and what's even more amazing is um, what Justice Chase wrote. He said, we are not at liberty to inquire into the motives of the legislature. We can only examine into its power under the Constitution. And the power to make exceptions to the appellate jurisdiction is given by express words. That's it. They said, we're done. Um, now, that procedure has been tried seldom in the years since. Uh, the court has never declared it invalid. The court has upheld jurisdiction stripping statutes. Um, at the end of the day, and this is, I think, the paradigm shift that we, we have to go through to, to get these ideas in full, I don't really care what the court says about jurisdiction stripping. If Congress feels that it can strip their jurisdiction, the, the authority is right there in the Constitution, they should strip it if they think it's appropriate in a particular case. If the court resists, Congress has ample uh, means at its disposal to overcome that resistance. So, I mean, this is what's so weird about this, right? The reason that the Supreme Court has power is because we, the people, decide to bow to its power. Practically, what we have here is a belief system, right? A belief system that puts these guys in black robes above everybody else, and we just defer to it. And yet these guys in black robes have decided they don't care what the court did in 1868. They don't care what the court did in 1965. They don't care what their own fellow justices did 10 years ago, right? Like, all rules seem to be off in our current American political situation. So this is what worries me. You're making a, a very technical argument about a handful of words in the Constitution, and I'm not sure anybody in power cares what the Constitution says right now. So, like, doesn't everything just crumble if we live under this system where we just go with it? I know what I'm describing sounds kind of crazy, but I think it describes our current situation. What am I missing? Well, I think you may be missing a sea change in belief about 
what the courts do. And it's only recently that I think people have begun to tune in because it is, I think, somewhat surprising to people that a right that an entire generation and more had taken for granted has suddenly been yanked away. It's not lost on people that this didn't happen by accident. This happened because the Republican Party has had a decades-long program of getting right-wing ideologues onto the federal bench. And I don't mean just conservative people. I mean conservative activists, people who are not conservative in the small c sense, but are ideologically and partisan conservative and willing to prosecute those ideas in the form of constitutional rulings. So that's what the GOP has been after. They've largely achieved that goal. And an enormously uh, important right, one which is central, especially to women's thriving, has been pulled away from them. This is, I think, really caused a shock reaction. People are beginning to wake up to the fact that, you know, the Constitution is a very vague, very old document that is in the hands of a bunch of people who have an agenda. And maybe, just maybe, the shock of that realization will lead people to think a little bit deeper about what kind of democracy we have, right? We have a constitutional democracy. We make most decisions or should make most decisions democratically, of course, guided and limited by our constitution. What it doesn't mean is that we make a bunch of decisions just provisionally, and then the Supreme Court sits as a kind of council of censorship, basically overturning decisions of ours that they don't like. That is not supposed to be the system. That is a system we're drifting toward. Um, I, I am at least mildly hopeful that democracy will react. Chris, I'm curious to, to ask you what response you've had to these arguments, especially from those kind of in the federal society camp. There's a whole judicial philosophy of adhering to careful textual meaning of the Constitution and what the founders intended, et cetera, right. that's been used to dial the clock back against social progressive legislation uh, for, for years and years. Mm -hmm. Here, you are offering a very specific literal reading of the Constitution. It, are, are the originalists suddenly abandoning textualism? No, no. So, so conservatives are very mixed about this because they recognize in this argument, as you say, like a careful adherence to text and to history and understanding of the purpose. And they get this, some of them. Some of them just don't like it because, you know, they've captured the institution and they don't want that mess with. So there's a, there's a mix. Liberals are also mixed. So there's the older ones, people my age and older, who tend to view the court through the lens that Siva articulated, this idea that, you know, they're very court-centric, they're court watchers, they're invested in the court as an institution. They hate this. Um, younger people in the field are more friendly toward it. I think they see the court more like I do, as a kind of botch from the start. You know, the anti-federalists, so I wrote something a while ago about the anti-federalists who predicted so much of this. So Brutus, one of the greatest anti-federalists, basically said, you know, the court's not responsible to anyone, and men in that position soon feel that they're not responsible to heaven itself. You know, he said they will mold the government to, into any shape they please. And that, that I think, um, some of those predictions are coming true. Well, I think your your next book should be called "Botched from the Beginning: <laughs> A History of the Supreme Court," and th that would be that would be one I'd read. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I I want to be persuaded by your argument, and I find it really kind of electrifying the notion that there in front of us are the tools to push back against judicial tyranny, which is, I think, what we feel like we're living in now. At the same time, given the realities of our Congress and our politics and our polarization. Let's say Democratic Senate, Democratic House pass six laws overturning unpleasant 
uh, aspects of previous legal decisions. The country goes nuts. Uh, polarization is worsened. Fuel is poured on the fire. And there's a sudden retribution at the polls. Congress goes Republican in the next session. Uh, maybe the White House does too. And they do it all over again. And we're just back to the pendulum swinging even more radically from left to right. T talk a little bit about how you deal with that. Yeah, you and I might have somewhat different priors about you know the future if we don't do something. <laughs> I doubt so, it. <laughs> yeah. Our current constitutional structure is so deeply flawed that the thriving of this country in the long term, the ability of the country to come to grips with the problems it faces it are going to require some pretty deep renovation. Now, how Congress uses this Article Three power that I and others have tried to outline is very much up for grabs. And of course, it needs to be used wisely. What Congress would be well advised to do would be to pick something that would be very popular. So imagine Democrats respond to America's insane levels of inequality by passing a wealth tax. That might be very popular. But the Supreme Court would very likely strike it down on the grounds that it fails to satisfy the Constitution's requirement that so-called direct taxes must be apportioned among the states by population. Um, what exactly this means is unclear, but it's a standard that's basically impossible for a wealth tax to meet. There are so many more rich people per capita in New York than in Mississippi. You could never apportion it. Okay, So imagine Congress basically just steps up and says, we're repassing this wealth tax. We're going to strip the court's jurisdiction. That's a kind of toe in the water, extremely important, extremely popular measure where the court has kind of bootstrapped some very unclear constitutional text into a very reactionary ruling. Congress steps in and says, no, I actually think that that would be extremely popular, that that would, in fact, be popular among a lot of Republicans as well. Um, like everything in a democracy, if you want to be a successful political party, you better pick your political battles carefully and be ready to defend them. This, this is not a riskless strategy. This is part of the point. This strategy has political costs, and that's part of what disciplines it. It's important that it has political costs. So again, this is not for amateur politicians. This is for pros. Right. So look, when we think about the great challenges, the things that we, that we face not only as Americans, as citizens in this constitutional democracy, but as humans who live in the world, right? We're facing a climate crisis that does not map on to the ways our constitution is designed. It doesn't even map on to the notion of the nation state being the prime driver of policy, right? We're, we're dealing with, yeah, growing economic inequality, and that's a global issue. It seems to me like we don't have the structure capable of addressing these problems in our current state. So what would happen if we started asking really hard questions? We wonder what kind of answers we might get, yeah. whether we would actually be thinking carefully, deliberately, uh, incrementally under those circumstances. Do you fear that? Yeah, of course I do. But I think this is partly a matter of disposition. I'm going to invoke Paul Westerberg of The Replacements, who once sang that he'd rather crack up in the sun than lose it in the shade. Mm. And I think what we're you know slowly doing is losing it in the shade. We need to start thinking about some structural reform. So climate crisis is a great example. You know, the Democrats just passed a bill that attempts to start to address this crisis, but they're going to have to do a lot more. They're going to have to pass legislation ultimately setting limits on carbon dioxide emissions and providing the EPA with new powers to write rules to hit those targets. And the Supreme Court might dismantle that law too. 
And in doing so, they might hold, this is something they've been working up to for a long time, they might hold that the Constitution prohibits Congress from delegating legislative power to administrative agencies. That is, instead of Congress writing in broad strokes and allowing administrative agencies with expertise like the EPA to figure out exactly how best to make these CO2 reductions, Congress has to legislate every jot and tittle. You know what that is. That is a conservative strategy to basically gum up the gears of government. It makes government basically impossible. The legislature doesn't have this expertise. Okay, so what's the reaction to that? The reaction to that is there is no non-delegation doctrine in the Constitution. This is an extrapolation from an extrapolation. It's like a conservative, you know, kind of dream of how to reorder the society using this 18th century document. And if we just sit there and let them do that, we are going to lose it in the shade. Well, as Westerberg would say, I'm so unsatisfied. Uh. Yeah, he would say that. He would. Um, so I, I like your vision of an active, small d democratic legislature pushing back on the tyranny of courts. But I still just want to make sure I, I understand. You know, your 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 argument presupposes that the risk is worth taking that we'll wind up with a kind of stalemate between the courts and Congress, in which neither institution has full legitimacy. Is it your view that basically Congress has to stand up and push back now or we'll lose our democracy? It's worth the risk. And what do you say to those who say, man, this just sounds like it's explosive? Yeah. So when you think of Canada, you typically don't think of explosions. You typically think of stable, democratic, constitutional state. Except for those truckers. Yeah. Well, <laughs> fair enough. I mean, that was, a, that was somewhat of an anomaly. But Canada has in its charter a section, section 33, that basically provides that the legislature has the power to legislate notwithstanding any ruling of the courts. So in other words, the courts can declare something constitutional and the legislature can basically say, yeah, tough, this is what we're going to do. That's what the notwithstanding clause allows it to do. Right. My, my feeling about that is, you know, if you look at what's going on up in Canada, that notwithstanding clause is rarely used, but it's there. It's there basically and available. And the fact that it's so salient and everyone understands that it's part of the game, I think contributes to a culture in which there is much more care taken by the courts to make decisions narrowly, to displace as little democratic room as possible compared to the United States, where our courts often rule very broadly and displace whole areas of democratic decision-making based on the, the kind of merest glimmers in the constitution of legitimacy. So I really feel that if we all focused on Congress's Article Three power as the functional equivalent in the United States of a notwithstanding clause, it might be that if Congress lays hands on it and uses it intelligently a couple of times, it might reorder mm -hmm. our judicial culture. It might make clear to Republicans or who, whatever party wants to seize the courts and turn them to its own ideological advantage, that that strategy has limits and costs. That, that's important to me because right now, we have a very unbalanced system where seizing the high ground of the Supreme Court has actually paid enormous benefits. It has, and potentially will help, keep in power a coalition that, in electoral terms, uh, might be dying. Now, if the Supreme Court rules and says, we don't recognize this jurisdiction strip, the president, if the president is behind the jurisdiction strip, could back Congress up and say, I'm not going to enforce their order. Mm. Let them enforce their order. And as, as Stalin once said of the Pope, how many divisions does he have? You can say that of the court. The court has no divisions, right? It, it is utterly reliant, as Hamilton recognized in Federalist 78, on the executive 
for the execution of its judgments. The court is a paper tiger. Um, the court understands this. And I actually think that in any real confrontation with a Congress bent on enforcing a jurisdiction strip, the court would put its tail between its legs extremely quickly. If it didn't, and I were the president, the first thing I would do is I would move them out of that fake Greek temple on Capitol Hill and stick them in an office park in Reston, Virginia um, for a term. And <laughs> we'll see how that works. Right. Well, even paper tigers have tails to put between their legs. Yeah. Uh, Christopher Sprigman, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy in Danger. Thank you. Christopher John Sprigman is a professor at New York University's law school. His teaching and scholarship focus on antitrust, intellectual property, and constitutional law. Earlier in his career, Chris served in the antitrust division of the U.S. Justice Department, litigating, among other cases, the United States versus Microsoft. Democracy in Danger is part of the Democracy Group podcast network. Visit democracygroup.org to find all our sister shows. We'll be right back after this message from our friends. When election season rolls around, it's easy to get distracted by the candidates, the polls, and the pundits. But elections, how they're run, how they're funded, how they're covered by the media, and who votes in them, are critical to the health of American democracy. Something that you might have noticed is in some trouble right now. 2022 Midterms, What's at Stake, a series from the Democracy Group Podcast Network, will go beyond horse race politics to look at some of the deeper issues that could shape American democracy for the next two years and beyond. You'll hear from scholars and other experts from across our network of podcasts devoted to democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. Subscribe to 2022 Midterms, What's at Stake, wherever you're listening right now. Well, Siva, I got to say, I love this argument, but I still worry about the possible consequences. I mean, you mentioned Brown versus Board. At the time of that decision, uh, there was an enormous section of the country that was opposed to it, but also there was opposition from both political parties in Congress. And it did take Dwight Eisenhower to step out and say, the Supreme Court has ruled I will obey their decision, even though privately he had a lot of doubts about it. If the Congress had turned to Article 3 in 1954, they could easily have said, no, we're just going to write a law that takes uh, this question of separate but equal sort of out of the, uh, uh, the power of the courts to review. I can imagine a lot of issues on which if Congress acted in this way, the Supreme Court and, the, and maybe even parts of the country would go completely nuts. I mean, look, we could play that game and we could go back and imagine a different country. It's an impossible thing to really determine. But I'm pretty sure the status quo now is not that great, right? The status quo now is one in which the Supreme Court, which is supposed to temper excess, which is supposed to instill predictability in law and policy, right? That has now become the chief instrument of instability in this country, right? And we have a, now a situation in which 
We can't address our big problems. We can't address our small problems. The world is super complicated, and we need experts in the executive branch to be able to determine all sorts of important things. So we have safe drugs and safe water and safe air, but the Supreme Court is pretty determined to make sure the executive branch can't do that. And I think we're in for some very bad times if we don't do something pretty strong to restrain the courts. Well, the irony is that the Supreme Court in acting in this way is actually serving to delegitimize its own standing. So it's true that we've reified the court and what the court says is the final word, but the court is behaving so radically that it is undermining its own credibility. And, you know, a very powerful voice recently made this case. Justice Sonia Sotomayor questioned whether the legitimacy of the Supreme Court would endure if it overturned the abortion rights decision. That was as the Dobbs case was being debated. And she had this wonderful line. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? And the answer to that is, you know, it might not. Right. And let's remember, the women of the state of Kansas, the people of the state of Kansas, made a pretty strong statement this summer as well that democracy should ultimately carry the day on such crucial issues like abortion rights. That's all we have this time on Democracy in Danger. If you haven't noticed, we've been focusing a lot on law this season. And next episode, we will consider whether the U.S. Constitution itself is in need of a major overhaul. The notion that we could have a constitutional convention that wouldn't immediately devolve, I think is probably unrealistic at this historical moment. Let's keep the conversation going. Until then, tell us your thoughts about the Supreme Court. We know you have them. Reach out to us on Twitter at DND Podcast. That's D I N D Podcast. You can also leave a comment on our webpage. That's dindanger.org. If you're late to this season, please catch up on our recent episodes with Jed Purdy and Emily Van Doon. Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armengol with help from Rebecca Barry. Ellie Bashkow is our engineer. Our interns are Ava Kretzinger-Walters, Ellis Nolan, and B. Webster. Support comes from the University of Virginia's College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Karsh Institute of Democracy. We're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Siva Vadianathan. And I'm Will Hitchcock. Talk to you soon. <laughs>